Hey, Sprinters, welcome to The Sprints with Carl and Jamie, where we will give you a sprint of life and fun. Food, fashion, travel, whatever comes to our minds. Let's get into it. Welcome back, Sprinters. We are here with our, well, my new buddy. And my old buddy. And Jamie's old young buddy, Kristen Ness, who is an amazing writer and immigration attorney. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Jamie. So good to see you both. Good to see you. And fun to see you in New York. Yes, I love coming up here. Such a great city, and this is a perfect time for it, too, because it was super hot in Charleston, where right. I live. <laughs> so Absolutely. it's, you know, it's warm here, but it's nothing like the humidity we get down there. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, I know that Kristen has brought an amuse-bouche, and I am so excited because this is one of my favorite Southern delicacies. Kristen, you want to tell us about it? Yes, this is called a Benny Wafer, and this one in particular is from the Old Colony Bakery, and it's one of the oldest recipes, about 100 years old. And Benny is actually from the Bantu dialect in East Africa, and it means sesame. Oh, my God. So Wait. these are light sesame wafer cookies that have just been around the low country for a century or more. Was Benny related to Uncle Ben? No. It's like, it's like a small sesame I mean, seed. I don't know. There's a lot of Bens. <laughs> Bens and Bennies. <laughs> Could be related somewhere. You know, we were talking about family trees. We were. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's oh, good. Sweet. I'm going to try one, too. I Jamie, how do you like yours? <laughs> Well, you know I love some Benny wafers, and you can't just mm-hmm. eat one. No, they you have, have that, to keep going. That nice nutty flavor. Yeah. Mm. And oh that lightness from the egg whites mm-hmm. and the sugar. Delicious. Now, you know I'm so fake bougie, right? So it's spelled B-E-N-N-E. I said, are these Benet wafers? <laughs> <laughs> I know you would think. I mean, it does look like it should be spoken that way. It's B-E-N-N-E is the way they're spelled, but yeah. it's pronounced like B-E-N-N-Y. And oh then there's God. the beignets that you get in New Orleans. Right. So it can be confusing because it sounds, it looks like it should sound like that. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> they're delicious. Down thank in the you South. for bringing them from Charleston for <laughs> You're us. You're welcome. Special treat from the Low Country. Yeah. Kristen, we are so excited to have you in your first in-studio podcast because you you have just published your first book at Loggerheads. I'm so excited for you. Thank you so much. It has been, uh, thank you. It's a dream come true. And yes, it came out in May. So it's only been out through the summer. And um, so far, I'm getting great feedback from readers, which is really exciting. And part of it, I didn't really think about when I was writing it, I mean, I thought about my readers, but didn't realize how much fun it was going to be to hear from people who are reading it and get their different takes on it and what they like about it and which characters are their favorites and whether or not they could figure it out. All of that's been a lot of fun. Well, why don't you give our spritzers just a thumbnail sketch about the book? Oh, sure. Okay. So when you're preparing for talking about your novel, they call this an elevator pitch. And it's what you should be able to say about your book if you're stuck on the elevator with someone and they say, what's your book about? Mm -hmm. And you should have enough, you know, just long enough to tell them what it is. So murder on a South Carolina barrier island brings together a sea turtle biologist and a local detective to unravel a mystery that might impact the race for the White House. 
That's my elevator pitch. So it tells you a little bit about it. Sea turtles, murder, politics, a love story, a little bit of uh, cross-genre. Kristen, I'm not going to ask you what you're into, honey. (laughs) (laughs) I know. When you write a murder mystery, I mean, you have to be careful. If something happened to me or to someone I know, and then they went and looked at my Google history from my research for this book, it would be bad for me. Very bad for me. (laughs) Because you're looking up, you know, how long does a body last in salt water? Right. Oh, my (laughs) God. What happens to (laughs) this part of the fingernails or whatever? So, yeah, not good. That's so look at that cool. history, but you have to do the research and that's part of it. You have to do the research. So I was just kind of like researching about you and you have such an eclectic background. Tell us like, where are you from? Mm. What's your family like? I mean, to write about murders <laughs> and tying turtles and study law, you, you just sound like there's just something else there, something fun, something mysterious. Tell me. Thank you. Well, I kind of had to pull some things together to make the (laughs) book work with a whole bunch of different backgrounds, but I don't have any personal experience with murder. I'll just put that out there (laughs) right at the front. But I do. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) You know, there's always time. (laughs) I'm just kidding. No, I'm really not that dark, but (laughs) in real life. So I would say probably the sea turtles. Mm -hmm. That goes back to one of my passions from when I was very young Mm. is marine biology and sea creatures. So I grew up mostly in South Carolina. And then we would go down to Charleston to an island nearby there, a barrier island called Isle of Palms for summer vacations and holidays. And I grew up going down there to the beach and Mm. really fell in love with all of the sea creatures there. So a lot of what you see on those beaches, sand dollars, sea urchins, starfish, sharks, sharks, stingrays, sea turtles. So yeah, so all of those kinds of sea creatures, I was always just fascinated and I would have my little cast net and go out on the beach and see what I would drag out of the tide pools and take them home and keep them in my aquarium and then, you know, hopefully try to keep them alive and then bring them back to the beach. No, not (laughs) sharks, just the little things, just the hermit crabs and all the little creatures like that. But always just loved that and also loved writing growing up. So fast forward to college, I majored in English, tried to keep one foot in marine biology. Mm -hmm. I wasn't majoring in that, but I was kind of on the fence and did a lot of coursework in that. I was in the water. I was kind of in the water, on the edge of the water. (laughs) Not sure. One foot in the water, one foot on land. Not sure what I wanted to do. So then you did what everybody who's not sure what they want to do does and goes to law school. Goes to law school. So, you know, you finish college and you're thinking, hmm, I had about a year. I took about a year between college and law school thinking, what do I want to do? Like, I thought maybe teach, maybe practice if I went to law school. It seemed like it really great base for a degree Mm -hmm. to do a lot of different things, not particularly marine biology. But I did think environmental law, I could maybe do something in that. So I went into law school really wide open to whatever possibilities I might come across as a practice. And Mm -hmm. when I was doing my summer internship at Parker Poe, where I met Jamie, I came across the immigration group. And that's where I hadn't had any coursework in that. It appealed to my international interests I had. I loved to travel, was able to meet people from all over the place and had a very set start and end point to each case, usually a good outcome, but also a challenging area of law where the law is always changing, Mm -hmm. complicated, and it interested me. So I thought I'd try going into that practice and ended up 
staying in it. So wow. <laughs> writing kind of took a back seat as something I'd kept doing, but I didn't have an idea for a novel at the time. So I was just practicing law, doing that, learning about it, trying to do that as my career, while also sort of having this in the back of my mind, maybe someday I'll write a book. And about the time I decided to leave the bigger firm world and start my own practice so I could have more time with family and all of that, it felt like the right time to really dig in and try to find my novel idea. And I was at the beach with my mom, and this was in about 2005 or six, so a while ago. And we saw sea turtle tracks on the beach. Hmm. And that was the first time I'd seen a mama loggerhead's track on the beach in real life. I'd seen pictures of it, but I'd never seen it in real life. And it looks like a bulldozer drove onto the beach. There are these big, wide tracks churned up on each side with sort of a flat belly drag mark through the middle. And this question or seed of an idea started what might be happening. And this was, you know, my fiction side of my brain that had been searching for this idea. What might be happening on this island if there was a crawlway onto the beach and then no turtle, no nest, and no return path back to the water? Usually the mama loggerhead crawls on the beach, Mm -hmm. finds a place to nest, makes a nest pit, lays her eggs, and then crawls back to the ocean. So you see a very clear path on and a very clear path back to the water. But what would happen if you just had one, no turtle, no nest, and no path back to the water, which we would normally call a false crawl if there wasn't a nest. But in this case, it looks like the turtle just disappeared. So that planted an idea in my head that grew into this novel eventually as I was coming up with what would be happening on this fictional barrier island that would cause someone to come across a single track like that. And multiple times it's been happening on my fictional island where they've been finding these pathways mm-hmm. and no nest, no turtle, no return crawlway. When the book opens, this has been going on for several years. When you meet my main character, Dr. Brooke Edens, she's the sea turtle biologist who is sort of my main character. There are mm-hmm. several prominent characters, but she's really the one that we follow all the way through. So that's, in a nutshell, sort of how I got from being an attorney originally to now getting my book out there and having it in my hands and having a published novel. I mean, it wasn't that fast. (laughs) At the time, I had children. I now have an 11-year-old and my daughter, who's 15. I was pregnant with her when I sat down and started writing the first draft from page one. So it took me 10 years to write the first draft and then lots of editing after that and going the route of finding an agent and all of that, which took about another five years from the time I finished. It's so funny how you talk about a mother turtle, yet you were mothering at the same time. It's kind of... There are a lot of parallels in the book. you drop eggs in the sand somewhere, (laughs) It was not not that easy to have a baby. Jamie can tell you that it's not like dropping some eggs in the sand. (laughs) And those mama turtles, by the way, they don't come back and like raise the babies. They just drop them off and And say, good luck. (laughs) As I was reading it, I thought Brooke clearly looks like you the way she's described. <laughs> and Drew clearly looks like your husband, Pete. There are definitely <laughs> some similarities, I'll have to say. But I think maybe the height I gave Brooke, just because 
I wanted her to be similar in height to me. I can write from that perspective. I wanted somebody mm-hmm. tall. And yes, there's definitely some of my husband and, and Drew, similar build and appearance. I've heard other authors say, especially in your first novel, there's a lot of the author in those characters. It's just part of writing what you know. And I definitely wanted her to be a sea turtle biologist. She Uh had to be doing what my alternate dream job would be. (laughs) Well, I will tell you, Carl, Uh I'm actually in the novel. You don't know this. You are. And neither does Kristen. (gasps) Because she describes someone who has curves that make up for her lack of height. (laughs) That is Jamie. Except (laughs) otherwise you are nothing like Diane's personality, right? That's true. (laughs) Now, Now, did you like, fabricate and fab up your husband like <laughs> does he have like 20 abs okay like, like tell me like what's okay. the look yeah drew is not exactly my husband <laughs> but he definitely has a lot of similarities in his height his hair she's color I'm a, I, uh-huh. she's so red right now well, I'm a, like, you know i'm kind of a sucker for blonde hair blue eyes and he's mm-hmm. definitely got that sandy blonde hair and the blue eyes and the height and the athletic build because he played tennis and so yes i had to put all of those into my, oh my God, the I, romantic interest of my main character but yes he'll see things written in the book and he'll be like wait is that, are you, he'll see them in maybe the Caldwell character and I'll say, wait, did you think I'm like Caldwell? I'm like, you are not like Caldwell. You are not the Caldwell character. Oh How can God. you not see the parts of you that are in Drew? And I guess he just can't read it that way. Do you have lots of people coming up and saying, oh, is that me or? Surprisingly not. There are definitely aspects of people's personalities, friends and even just acquaintances that I've come across in my life that I threw in there. And even some actual dialogue that was Mm -hmm. pulled from real life over time because I keep a journal. So, you know, you never know when something you say, I'm constantly jotting things down, whether it's on my phone notes app or when I get home to use in future novels, because nothing's better than how people really talk. And it's coming from people I know, but a lot of times it's also coming from strangers and sort of just being an observer. I think that's a big part of being a writer is observing things you hear, aspects of people's personality that you pick up on, their character traits, their mannerisms, things like that, that you can put into characters. Mm -hmm. What great advice for young writers, because I'm sure now that you're a published author, you're hearing all the time, how did you get your agent? Can your agent see my book? All those kinds of things. Uh, Yes, you do hear. And I want to always be encouraging because so many authors that I met along the way were so encouraging to me and helped sort of mentor me through the process. It's a great community, especially down where I live in the low country. Many of the authors there, from debut authors to well-established authors, have been so supportive. And when we see each other at events and things like that, we're always quick to ask how it's going and where they are in their next project. And that's encouraging. And I really want to help pass that along to other writers who are coming up who might not be published yet, who might be looking for that agent, might be in the sort of rejection phase of things, (laughs) that it's going to be okay. Well, that's how I feel about the podcast too, you know. Yeah, so much fun. It gives you an outlet. Yes. Because being a lawyer is so stifling, as you well know. 
Yes, it is. And I get stuff too, like, can you tell me about this domestic thing or child custody? I'm like, people, I do commercial <laughs> right, litigation. Right. Exactly. You're bound by your practice and uh-huh. you're bound by the law that you know and by the law, period, the black letter law. So you really can't expand on that or give an opinion without having all of the facts. Whereas with, you know, all the fun, creative things we can discuss on podcasts or in writing, you can go anywhere. Imagination is the limit. You can just have fun with that as a creative outlet. So are you telling us you wanted to be a lawyer focused on murders? (laughs) (laughs) No, I did not ever want to be a lawyer focused on murders. I was never interested in the criminal law sides of things. But now as a writer, it's a lot of fun to get into that from the creative fictional side. Uh Uh-huh and explore it through my characters. So murder mystery and thriller and suspense appeals to me. Those are the kinds of books I like to read. I read a wide variety of genres, but it makes for a puzzle in a plot Uh that I think is a lot of fun for readers. And I was hoping with that kind of genre, because it's different from a lot of what you see when you're reading about something like the beach and sea turtles, that people would be curious about how sea turtles are being wrapped into a murder mystery Mm -hmm. with a love story, how these things interact and are related. So they would come to the book looking for the mystery and looking for whodunit, but might learn about sea turtles along the way Uh without even realizing it because my main character brings in so much of the biology of sea turtles Uh as she's helping Drew solve the crime. A lot of the clues are tied back to the names of the sea turtles that they're rescuing or the hatching and nesting habits of the sea turtles. Those are inextricably tied to the murder itself. Uh So... The reader hopefully is learning a little bit about sea creatures without even realizing it. And that was one of my goals when I set out to write a novel with a sea creature in it, particularly the sea turtle. Well, your cover is lovely, too, and it has the sea turtle and the beach, and it came out in May. So what a perfect beach read, Yes, and I kind of— That was. That was on purpose, the timing of the book release. So when you're working with a publisher, generally books come out on Tuesdays. Yeah. That's what I learned in the publishing world. So Tuesday's launch day for new releases, and it just so happened that Tuesday— May 23rd was World Turtle Day. Oh, wow. So that was my release day. And my launch day, it was a Tuesday in May, and also happens to fall in about the same time frame that my book takes place in, because the book takes place in the span of a week in late May at the beginning of sea turtle nesting season. So sea turtles nest on our beaches from May through mid-August. And then also in my book, there's a presidential campaign going on, and it's the year before the presidential election year, much like we're in right now. So when my book came out, it was actually very much right in the setting of the book itself, that week at the end of May. Now, Kristen, do you do the walks on the beach for the turtles and protecting the nests and helping the turtles get to the ocean? I do. And when I moved to Charleston about 10 years ago, that was one of the things I did first because I was already working on this book and I wanted to see firsthand how that works. So I'm on what's called the turtle team Mm -hmm. and we take care of the turtles on Isla Palms and Sullivan's Island right outside of Charleston. Those are two barrier islands. We had a great nesting season this summer. Our nest numbers were up in the 50s, I think, low 50s combined, which is a lot for our islands. We're usually down in the 30s. So we had a great nesting season. And basically what I do being on the team is I go out once a week right at 
sunrise and walk my section of the beach. So you'll see my character, Brooke, does this as well. And basically they have the beach on the island divided up into sections and a walking volunteer will cover each section each morning to look for the mother sea turtle tracks. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for those early because if she nested in an area on the beach where it needs to be moved, we need to move those eggs before it gets to be too warm and those Gosh. the nest sets. So we look for the mama turtle tracks, and if we find the tracks, then I call the sea turtle ladies, a group of women who are certified to come out and handle the eggs, and they come and search for the nest. And if they find eggs, then they decide whether or not to leave them in situ in the place that they were laid or move them to another location. And they would move them mostly if it looks like the nest is going to be at a part of the beach that will be washed over at some point, especially at a super full moon mm -hmm. when the tide comes way up. So they don't want the nest to be drowned. And the eggs take about 60 days to incubate. So the nest will be there for a while. Mm -hmm. Once they've found the nest, they mark it off. And you might have seen on beaches, if you've been to some of the beaches where there are turtles, the marked off nest areas. It's usually sort the of do staked not cross off. police murder yes. tape. Right, exactly. Right. It looks like a crime scene. It's that fits well with the murder mystery. The tape around the stakes, and then usually there's a sign on there that says this is a sea turtle nest. It's federally and state protected, so mm -hmm. you can't handle the nest or mess with the turtles in any way. So if I'm not mistaken, I think I've read, you know, previously that turtles are one of the most ancient animals on the face of the planet. No, they are. They are living fossils, is sometimes mm -hmm. what people call them, because they haven't changed. They're so well adapted for where they live out in the ocean, for what they do to continue their species, that they really haven't changed much in design. They've been around for millions and millions of years. One of the oldest. And are they endangered or? Some of them are. There are only seven species of sea turtles, and all of them are threatened. Mm -hmm. Some are critically endangered. Some of them used to be considered endangered, which there are different levels. So you have critically endangered, endangered, threatened. A lot of them used to be endangered and have now moved to threatened, which is good. That means they're recovering. With your help. The species have been recovering definitely with the help of a and lot the of these ladies. turtle teams, the turtle, turtle ladies. ladies. There's been so much more awareness around trying to help these hatchlings make it, at least make it to the ocean from their nests because the statistics say that only one in a thousand hatchlings survives to adulthood. So they need all the help they can get. We see mostly loggerhead sea turtles on the South Carolina beaches. That's our state reptile is the loggerhead sea turtle. Mm -hmm. They've been coming to our beaches for as long as probably before we were there. And we're just starting to understand how their family trees work and sort of how they interrelate because the general understanding is that sea turtles return to their natal beach, the beach where they were born, when they become adults, the females do, to nest on the same beach or in the same region as their birthplace. And this is something that we're still trying to figure out how they do that. It's said that when they go into the ocean, they follow the magnetic fields of the poles to find their way back. But nobody really knows for sure right. because we've only been paying attention and really studying that aspect of it for 
maybe since the 1990s, and getting data on that. So there's a study going on at the University of Georgia, and when we find a nest in South Carolina, we take one egg from each nest and send it to them for DNA analysis, and they're trying to build family trees. And they've been doing this for about 12 or 13 years, so it hasn't been quite long enough because the female turtles don't come back to nest until they're about 25 to 30 years old. So we'll need to wait until we get farther along to be able to figure out if the hatchlings from some of the female turtles nesting now are coming back to nest on the beach. And another little cool fact that I learned about turtles is when they're in the nest incubating, the sex of the turtle is determined by the temperature of the sand. So we call it hot chicks and cool dudes. So if it's hotter, (laughs) they become females. And if it's cooler, during the course of their incubation, they become males. Well, men are cool. Girls are hotheads. Girls can be cool. Uh, Girls can totally be cool. I don't know about that. Jamie, what do you think about that? He's outnumbered. I I learned a lot about turtles from reading your book. But I know your family is really excited for you writing a book. How do you deal with your mom and your daughter reading the sex scenes? Oh. Oh. Mm. Okay, first of all, my daughter has not read my book. So she's 15. (laughs) I have read it aloud to her in one of its earlier drafts, but I skipped certain parts. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my mom... She just didn't really say anything about those scenes in particular. <laughs> so <laughs> I think she just, I mean, she loves my book and she was, you know, has been very helpful in getting the word out and is very excited, of course. But I guess maybe one of my first drafts that she read, she was like, wow, I mean, I just can't believe you wrote this. It's amazing. <laughs> like, kind of Aww. like, I can't believe there were some parts in there that I didn't realize you knew about. <laughs> Sounds like mom's been reading a lot of stuff. <laughs> so we normally do a runway takeaway at the end. So a runway takeaway is something that someone needs to have in their daily life that is part of the world of fashion and style. Yes, I have been listening to your podcast, so I was thinking about this. Now, I want three. Mm. You get three? <laughs> on the spot. I want three. I get three. I want one mm. for you mm. and two for your characters. Ooh. Ooh, I like it. In the book. Okay, so starting with me, my runway takeaway would be a versatile sundress. Mm-hmm. So... It'd have to be a sundress you could wear that's short, that's flowy, and that can easily go from you walking on the beach that day with your flip-flops on and your sun hat Uh to coming off the beach, throwing on some heels and some earrings and doing your hair and going out. So it would be a a sundress that works all day. Kind of like resort wear. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. It could be any kind of print or a solid color, whatever you like. But it has to be something that could go from beach to nightclub. Very cool. <laughs> so, an all-day sundress. <gasps> oh, wait, I changed my question. What? Okay. What's the runway takeaway for a murder? Ooh. A murderer. <laughs> a murderer? What does a murderer need? Gosh, what is a murderer? Black I mean, gloves. Black gloves. Well, I mean, I guess another more modern murder that's been happening in the South is the whole Murdoch saga, yeah. right? Oh, of course. So I would think if you're a murderer, you want to have lots of the same exact shirt, right? If you got caught in one, they wouldn't be able to say, oh, well, that was the exact shirt that you had on X day. Because if you always wear that same shirt, 
they'll never know if it was that exact one or just one of the many that you have. So I think wearing the same clothes over and over again. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is a creepy session. (laughs) Well, so the Murdoch murders, all of that came out after I was already into the whole publishing process. But earlier on, when I was working with my agent on edits, I remember him saying specifically about my politician character, there was something that my character had done toward the end of the book, like a conversation he'd had or a voicemail he'd left that didn't make it into the final published version. But this was before Murdoch had come out. And he was saying how what my character had said was just not plausible. Like, that's just not plausible that somebody would actually leave that on a voicemail or that a politician who's supposed to be savvy would actually do that. (laughs) And now I say, after all of the Murdoch mess, you can't ever say anything is implausible anymore because that was stranger than fiction. That was so over the top. All of the murders and all of the things that were connected to that one family, if you had put it into a fictional book, any agent or publisher would just say, no, you've got to take half of this out. Like, there's no way this (laughs) one person is tied to all of this. That's just so implausible. That's one of the words they use, plausible or implausible when you're working on fiction stories. So, yeah, at least the Murdoch murders helped in that aspect where now, sky's the limit. You can write about anything. You just make it all up because if it could happen, look at that whole family and all that happened there. Anything you write, it's possible. It's plausible. So spritzers, go to your local bookstore and buy At Loggerheads by Kristen Ness. Thank you so much for saying that because one of the keys to getting it out into other bookstores and getting it out of South and North Carolina is to go to your local bookstore and ask for it. Because if they don't have it in stock on the shelf, if they hear about it enough from readers who want it, they will order it and keep it in the store. So that's ideal. If you can do that, if you're interested in having my book in your local store, go ask them for it. And also, please tell us where you volunteer. We would love to know about the organization as well. Oh, great. Thank you for asking that, too. In the back of my book, there's a note to readers that lists all of the different organizations you can contribute to, either your time or your interest. You can volunteer. You can make a monetary donation, however you want to use your resources. There are lots of great organizations out there. In particular, the Island Turtle Team that I'm with in South Carolina. Look into them. Look them up online and get involved if you're interested in volunteering or make a donation. The South Carolina Aquarium has an amazing sea turtle rescue center where they take in injured sea turtles and rehabilitate them and release them. And there's a scene in my book that takes place at a sea turtle release where they're releasing adult turtles back into the water after being rehabilitated. So they do great work. And there's a whole list back there. So definitely check that out. Everyone, when you buy the book on social media, at Kristen Ness, but also at National Geographic so they can help sponsor. (laughs) Yes, come on. Bring the Nat Geo. I love National Geographic. Yes, that would be... That would be a great collaboration I think so. I think we'd go hand in hand. There was a whole article they did, or many, I'm sure, all about sea turtles. And I think the ocean's definitely having a moment, not only in nonfiction things like National Geographic, but in fiction too. And I've noticed this, and I'm hoping it to trend. Remarkably Bright Creatures, Shelby Van Pelt gave me my cover blurb. All about the giant Pacific octopus. She kind of kicked it off into the mainstream. And then Mary Alice Monroe, who's very well-known in our area and also has many 
New York Times bestselling books about has woven different sea creatures and other species into her stories. There's Whale Fall by Daniel Krauss that just came out that's about a scuba diver that's accidentally swallowed by a whale. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, yeah, they're having a moment. So look for those sea creature books. Spritzers, that's all for this episode. Thank you, Kristen Ness, for coming and talking about your book and your world of sea turtles, South Carolina, and marine biology, and being an attorney. Thank you so much for having <laughs> and murder, me. And, and murder. murder. And on that note, I'm stabbing us at it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today for The Spritz with Carl and Jamie, a production of Hanger Studios. You can follow us on Instagram at The Spritz Pod, on Facebook at The Spritz, and you can find this amazing Spritzy Ritzy podcast on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you may find your podcast. Please subscribe and rate and review us. Thank you, guys.